Hello, and thank you for listening to this special Good Friday podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnais, Illinois. This sermon is from April 19, 2019. The sermon is entitled, Follow Jesus to the Cross, Listen to Him, and is based on John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. It was preached by Pastor Carl Copen. God's peace be yours today in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The text for the message comes from the gospel reading where we heard. Carrying his own cross, they went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Let us pray. O Lord, we come into your presence with prayer and thanksgiving, and so it's so great a gift, a gift in your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And as we gather, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Maker and our Redeemer. Amen. What we heard today in our Gospel reading was nothing really special or unique for the person who lived in Jerusalem in the year AD 33. Ever since the Romans took over the Holy Land, they had executed thousands of people for various offenses. I don't know if we can say that people ever got used to it, but they certainly became accustomed to it. So if you were coming to Jerusalem that day and you saw three men hanging on crosses, it really didn't signify that this was an unusual day. But we do know that it was an unusual day, that first Good Friday, because there was no ordinary man on the cross in the middle. Between those two outlaws is God, God in the flesh, the Son of God, God the Son, Jesus Christ. It is as if those two intersecting pieces of wood that form the cross were a symbol of the intersection that occurred 33 years earlier, the intersection of heaven and earth. So today we go back to that first Good Friday, and throughout that monumental day, our Savior spoke seven times. So let us follow Jesus to the cross and let us listen to him. But before we look at the words that our Lord said from the cross, I think it's good for us to review the basics about crucifixion. I mean, after all, we read the story and we know it sounds bad, but do we really know the details? We should. What was crucifixion like in the ancient world? Most of our information about crucifixion comes from the four Gospels. In these Gospels, we hear details about the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. But another source of information about the practice of crucifixion is ancient Greek and Roman literature. Although the Greeks and Romans did not write about it frequently, they wrote about it often enough to supply information, important information, about this method of execution. Now, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion as a method of execution, but it seems like they perfected it. It was prevalent in the ancient world. The Persians were the first to use it Use crucifixion. Greek author Herodotus tells us that King Darius mentioned in the Bible 
had 3,000 Babylonians crucified in about 519 B.C. Two centuries later, Alexander the Great also used crucifixion in his conquest. For example, in, in his history of Alexander, Curtius Rufus tells us that he had 2,000 citizens of Tyre crucified after he conquered the city. When we hear of it and its descriptions, it's still recoil. We recoil in that, don't we? But what did the ancients think of crucifixion? Well, they considered it to be the most shameful, the most painful, the most detestable, detestable of all executions. Julius Paulus, a Roman jurist, lists crucifixion in first place as the worst of all capital punishment, listing it ahead of death by burning, death by beheading, and death by wild beasts. They consider death by crucifixion to be not just any execution, but the most obscene, the most disgraceful, the most horrific execution known to man. Now, how is the crucifixion actually carried out? Well, the first thing we know, there is a lot of variety uh, in the way crucifixions were done, but the main thing was to expose the victim to the utmost indignity. Romans appeared to follow the same procedure in most cases, although they did departed from some time, uh, having people crucified either upside down or hanging from gallows. But what form did the normal, if you can say normal, crucifixion take? Well, first came the flogging or the scourging, usually done by two soldiers using whips uh, that had several leather thongs of different lengths. Uh, tied to those were little iron balls or sharp pieces of bone or glass uh, on the ends and the victim stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied above him to a post. And the place for whipping was from the shoulders all the way down to the mid-thighs. Mid, uh, mid They'd be flogged until the person collapsed. With the back and legs thus torn open, there would be extensive blood loss. This blood loss often determined how long the crucified person, uh, it took them to die. The fact that Jesus was not able to carry his cross the whole way, the fact that he died in six hours indicates that flogging was pretty severe. Some sources tell us that many people just died from the flogging alone. Next, the condemned man was made to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion outside the city walls. It could have been the whole cross, but, but some think that it was probably, that probably would have weighed about 300 pounds. <laughs> The condemned man probably carried just the cross beam across his shoulders, shoulders that had been ripped open by the flogging. The cross beam probably weighed between 75 to 125 pounds. And so the procession to the crucifixion site uh, was usually led by a complete military guard headed by a centurion, a sign which often told what the condemned man was guilty of, was sometimes carried by a soldier or just hanged around the condemned man's neck. And that sign would later be attached to the top of the cross. When the victim uh, reached the place of execution by law, he was given a, a drink, uh, wine mixed with myrrh uh, or gall, intended to be like a mild narcotic, uh, would deaden the pain. And it's pretty significant that Jesus refused that drink. The criminal was then stripped naked, remember, humility and, in, and indignity thrown to the ground on his back, arms outstretched across the crossbeam. Hands would either be tied or more often nailed to the crossbeam. 
Uh, nailing was a Roman's preferred method. The victim now nailed to the cross beam was hoisted up to uh, be attached to the upright beam. Finally, the feet were nailed one on top of another with an iron spike. Sometimes there was a, a small block or a plank uh, on the upright beam. Uh, the criminal could straddle that piece of wood and, and relieve some of the weight that the body of pressing on the nails. Now, the pain of crucifixion is not difficult to imagine, is it? In addition to the excruciating pain from the nails, the position of the crucified on the cross led to a complication with normal breathing. Breathing so difficult that in order to breathe, they had to pull up on the nails in the hand and push up on the feet uh, that were nailed, which would inflict a lot of pain. In addition, as they lifted their bodies to breathe, they would painfully scrape their scourged back against the cross, reopening those wounds and causing bleeding again. On the cross, every breath would be agonizing, an agonizing affair. Finally, in combination with exhaustion, would, would lead to asphyxia. That explains why the legs of the crucified were often broken, as was the case with the two robbers who were crucified with Jesus. A lot of times they were broken out of mercy. Without the support of their legs, they were unable to lift up their bodies to breathe, and it sped up their death often in minutes. All this means that the seven sayings of Jesus were uttered with great difficulty. For his speaking takes place while he's trying to breathe, and it's hard for Jesus to breathe, let alone speak, but he does speak. He speaks for us. And so let's go to that first Good Friday. Throughout this day, our Savior spoke seven times. Seven times he pushed himself up to breathe. Seven times he spoke to his followers. I've included those in your bulletin today. The first word, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. We know uh, things began happening around nine in the morning. The context indicates that this word was spoken at the very beginning of the crucifixion. Maybe shortly after the seven-inch or longer spikes were driven into his wrists and feet. Or maybe just after the piece of wood holding him was dropped into the ground with a thud. It's significant that the first word is a word of forgiveness. It shouldn't surprise us. Forgiveness is the essence of our faith. Forgiveness is a central point around which all Christianity revolves. Forgiveness is what Jesus Christ is all about. With this word, we see that not only Jesus provides forgiveness, he also practices it. Could we have done that? And just think of the situation. Think of the natural response to being treated in that way. And let us think of Jesus' response. What happens when people fail to forgive others as Jesus has forgiven us? Few things. Homes are broken. Marriages dissolve. Relationships are strained. Wars are fought. Feelings are hurt. Names are called. Ulcers are formed. Bitterness sets in. All because we have a hard time with forgiveness. Let's listen to Jesus at the cross and learn the meaning of forgiveness. The second word, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise, where 
we're about an hour or two into it now, and this word was spoken uh, to one of the thieves on the cross after he had come to faith. As such, two things stand out in this word from the cross by Jesus. First is, there is no one for whom Jesus Christ did not die. Other Gospels indicate this criminal changed his mind, that at one time he joined in in the mocking of Jesus, but later on he comes to his defense, coming to faith, defends Jesus, and Jesus promises paradise. What does this mean to us? It assures us that there is no sin too big for Jesus to forgive. It provides you and me with hope, hope for the loved ones that don't take their spiritual life seriously. It's our encouragement to keep on praying for them, to keep on witnessing to them, keep on sharing God's good news to them in Jesus Christ. Sometimes that relationship with Jesus comes later rather than sooner. And secondly, the place where we will be someday is called paradise. Paradise. I would guess that each of us has our own understanding of what that entails. But Scripture tells us that it's beautiful, beyond words. The paradise that Adam and Eve lost for us through sin had now been regained for us by Jesus. Jesus died for all, holding out that hope of eternity. Let us listen to the cross, Jesus at the cross, and rejoice in what lies ahead. The third word, dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And, and when, when is this spoken? It's probably just before noon, perhaps. Jesus is dying. And so in his own way, to the one who gave him birth, Jesus makes arrangements for his mother. He cares for his earthly family. And what's the lesson for us in this word? We see Jesus' devotion to detail. Even on the cross, he's concerned about his loved ones. And that should be a great comfort to you and me. Because we are also his loved ones. He is also devoted to the details of our lives, every part of our lives. The Apostle Paul put it this way, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So let us listen to Jesus at the cross remember his devotion to us. The fourth word. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sarthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ninth hour is approximately 3 p.m. The gospel tells us that this word, spoken at the end of a three-hour period of darkness, and I'm sure that there are moes among us who may have felt a pain of rejection, maybe the intense loneliness of, of feeling completely abandoned. And I'm sure there are moes among us who have felt at times that God was distant or maybe he was in, unresponsive to our needs. Those are just feelings. The fact is that God's promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Yet on that day, God forsake had forsaken Jesus. That's the cry from the cross that is so soul-wrenching. God turned away from Jesus, and Jesus suffered God's wrath, the wrath that we deserve, the wrath that we will never experience or go through. We listen to Jesus at the cross to remember what we have been spared. 
The fifth word, later knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, how much later is this word from Jesus? I mean, is it just minutes or a half an hour? I'm not really sure. But we can clearly say that the end is near. This word from the cross tells us two related things. First, it speaks to the intensity of Jesus' suffering. I mean, Jesus suffered, and all the world there is no death as painful or as shameful as crucifixion. As I said, the Romans used it on countries they conquered, but they refused to use it as a form of capital punishment on their own citizens. With each cross, Rome sent a signal, mess with us and you suffer the agonizing consequences. Jesus suffered, but why? He suffered for you and me. He suffered in our place. He suffered to spare us the, that eternal suffering in hell. The other thing that it talks about, it impresses upon us, Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. This was God's plan outlined throughout the Old, Old Testament. But nowhere seen as clearly as we heard today in Isaiah chapter 53. There we are told it is the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The suffering Savior is predicted elsewhere, even to the, the detailed point of this word from the cross in Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21, where we hear this, You know how I am scorned and disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Sin is serious business. It took suffering and death to satisfy and pay that price. The cross harmonizes God's justice towards sin and his love for sinners. So we listen to Jesus at the cross and reflect on what he went through for us. The sixth word. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. But what's finished? Not the drink of vinegar. <laughs> Everything is finished. Everything necessary for our salvation. 33 years of perfect, sinless, active obedience to all the laws and commands of God. Almost 24 hours of perfect, passive obedience as he allows his passion to reach this highest degree. I know I mentioned it in the past, but you know this statement from the cross is a single word. To telestai. Actually, a business term more or less, uh, being paid in full, that, it, that it's all completed. Nothing left to do. Nothing left incomplete. Nothing left undone. And praise God, there's nothing that we have to do to be saved. Christ has done it all. That's the heart of the gospel message. It is finished. Therefore, there is no need to worry about the things temporal or eternal. Let us listen to Jesus at the cross and marvel at our accomplished salvation. Seventh word, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. It may have overlooked otherwise, but the fact of the matter is that Jesus was in complete control of his life and his death. 
No one took it from him. He voluntarily gave it up. The good shepherd willingly lays down his life for his flock. We are a sheep, the sheep of his pasture. We listen to Jesus at the cross, for there we're redeemed, restored, and forgiven. In the early 12th century, a clergyman named Rupert, the abbot of Deutz, uh, uh, recorded his thoughts about the cross of Christ for our lives. I think I've probably read this before to you, but I, I believe that hearing these thoughts presents us with some good thoughts as we prepare for our further worship service tonight. I'm going to read these words, and I want you to take note of the, the marvelous description that he gives. We venerate, that is, we understand and believe the cross as the safeguard of faith, as the strengthening of hope, as the throne of love. It is the sign of mercy, the proof of forgiveness, the vehicle of grace, and the banner of peace. We venerate the cross because it has broken down our pride, shattered our envy, redeemed our sin, and atone for our punishment. The cross of Jesus Christ is the door to heaven, the key to paradise. The downfall of the devil, the uplifting of mankind, the consolation of our imprisonment, the, the prize of our freedom. The cross was the hope of the patriarchs, the promise of the prophets, the triumph of kings, and the ministry of priests. Tyrants are convicted by the cross, and the mighty ones are defeated. It lifts up the miserable and honors the poor. The cross is the end of darkness, the spreading of light, the flight of death, the ship of life, and the kingdom of salvation. And so, my friends, with deep devotion and humble gratitude, we follow Jesus. We follow him to the cross once again today. We listen to him there. We know that his cross was raised for us because, all of, and because, because of us and for the purpose that one day he will raise us up in eternity. So let us listen to him that he may change our lives forever. Amen. And now, may the peace of God that transcends all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to this special Good Friday podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnais, Illinois. You can find this and other special podcasts by going to stpaulslutheran.net and clicking the sermons button at the top of the page. Thank you for listening and God's blessings.